Good morning. We're, uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Colossians chapter 2. And as Dustin uh, already prayed, I just want to reiterate how grateful I am uh, that we have a space to meet this morning. Uh, we want to be really mindful of uh, public health and of what's best for you guys and uh, as well as the recommendations being handed down by our county officials. So I just want to uh, invite you guys as it looks like at least the next three weeks we'll be meeting out here. Uh, if there are any things you can think of that would help kind of facilitate or improve uh, what we're doing this week, please feel free to shoot me an email, tyler at santacruzbaptist.com. Uh, we really want to be able to make this as accessible as possible, uh, but we're trying to uh, trying to stay on our toes and uh, make sure we're being flexible with what's taking place. But I'm mindful that not all the churches in the county that are trying to be cautious have a place like us to meet, and so I just want to express how grateful I am. Uh, I'm reminded on a regular basis of this when I see Walter, who represents the church that gave us this facility, uh, and the church whose legacy we sort of continue here. Uh, as well as, as we approach the text this morning, I should say that I'm a bit apprehensive about preaching this text. Uh, fundamentally, this text is a text about religious judgment about how we might kind of take on a heart or a disposition of uh, passing off judgment. And in fact, I think because of that, there's some aspect of this where we all should be ready to listen and to hear what God has to say for us this morning. I mean, if you think about it, likely you feel either external pressure to conform to some sort of extra-biblical requirement to prove that you're a real disciple or a true follower or a faithful Christian. Or you might be aware of your own temptation to press external pressure upon others. And so as we approach this text, what we see is two types of pressure that might be felt to make us to conform to something other than what the scriptures would have us see, other than what the scriptures would have us believe, and other than what the scriptures would have us practice. And so as we open up this text, I want to be mindful of that, that this is a necessary thing for us to hear, but it might also be a hard thing for us to hear this morning. So let's get in. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, 
Why, as if you were alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We don't have slides this morning, so there's a handout where you can take some sermon notes if you grab that. Uh, but I want to try and stick pretty close to the text and just walk through it uh, so that we can see precisely what's taking place here. And just by way of observation, I think it's fair to point out that this passage begins in kind of an odd spot. I mean, if you think about it, how on earth would you keep a commandment, an imperative, to not let anyone else pass judgment upon you? That's how Paul starts. Don't let anyone else judge you. But you have no access nor control to the thoughts and the motives, the desires of others. Nor, by the way, do I think you should want sort of control in that sense. That strikes me as something that's more akin to dystopian fiction than Christian regeneration. So we have to at first acknowledge that this is kind of a strange thing for Paul to actually command us to do. As well, just to make a second observation, this is not a universal get-out-of-judgment-free card. You see, the idea of judgment comes up a lot in Scripture. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, one of the most frequently quoted by those who even do not hold the Bible as authoritative in the same way we would, would come from Matthew chapter 7. You might already know it from your head. Judge not that you be not judged. For the, with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. With the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. However, if you read Matthew 7 further, you would find this is not just a universal command not to judge. Rather, what Jesus is getting at there and what Paul is getting at here is that there are particular instances in which judgment is warranted, even necessary for discipling, for walking with each other as we walk towards Christ. But there are also times in which judgment ventures outside of what is healthy into something that is not, into something that we might call pharisaical. So passing judgment in general is not wrong, but passing judgment in particular instances is. We can actually see this in what Paul tells us not to judge. Notice what he says. In question of food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, you see, these things are not only external, but Paul calls them a shadow. And in fact, these things are not random. They might seem arbitrary at first, but anyone who would have had familiarity with the Old Testament would have recognized this list. 
What we're being told loud and clear is that there's aspects of the Old Covenant, things laid out in the Old Testament, usually referred to as the ceremonial law, meaning ceremonies, festivals, aspects of life that were intended to set the people following Yahweh, the people following God, apart, both visually, so that their unbelieving neighbors saw them, saw them clearly act different, and to symbolize how they were to be set apart as well in their hearts, how they were to believe different, live different, love differently. And so we hear loud and clear then, if we were familiar with the Old Testament, that what what people could not judge was Leviticus 11, what people ate and drank, or Leviticus 23, how and when religious festivals ought to be held, or Numbers 28.10, how they were to worship and sacrifice with each new month, which for them would have brought a new moon, and how they were to keep the Sabbath, Leviticus 23 again. You see, these are not arbitrary. They're understandable in the context in which Paul is explaining them. He is saying that there are some people who still feel obligated to give honor to the shadow, even though they have now seen, seen the shadow caster. But we ought not judge people, nor ought we feel obligated to be judged by the need to honor the shadow. I want to be clear, there are some commands, in fact, the majority of commands in the Old Testament are still relevant for us today. They still should be kept. But particular commands that Paul lays out here, what they do is they were intended to point the Israelites forward to the coming Messiah. And so it's as if when we open our Bibles to the New Testament, it's as if Jesus stands there and the Son of the Holy Spirit casts his shadow back on the Old Testament. And so as you would be concerned as a large shadow passed over you, seeing the ground and seeing the shadow grow, your eyes would naturally be drawn up to the sky to see what it was that stood blocking the sun, that stood which the sun cast the shadow at. And so for the Israelites, they were supposed to see these festivals, see these rituals, see these actions and commands, and look earnestly for the one that cast the shadow. We get this described a bit more clearly in Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author has gone through a sermon laying out how Jesus not only fulfills, but is the greater embodiment of all sorts of things that came in the Old Testament. In other words, you think Moses was great as a lawgiver, going up onto the mountain and receiving the commands and coming down. Well, Jesus is the greater Moses who needs not to mediate. He needs not a mediator for himself between God and man, but he is God himself become man. And he goes through and he gives us example after example from the Old Testament. And then to clarify in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews pauses and he writes, These things serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, quote, See, you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant was faultless, there would be no occasion for a second. The author of Hebrews is saying, if the Old Testament could have done it completely, there would be no need for something new. Yet he goes on to actually quote from the prophet Jeremiah, who says that a new covenant is coming, in which God would write his law not on stone tablets, but on the tablets of flesh called our hearts. And so he tells us that God from the very beginning knew and established a covenant that could not complete what his desires were such that we would be prepared by the shadow for the true covenant. He didn't want us to miss it. So he gave us a prequel, a signpost. And the author of Hebrews tells us the tabernacle, Moses, the law, the temple, the kings, all shadows cast by one shadow caster. And the author of Hebrews closes that section in verse 13 saying, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, out of date, expired. And so these new moons, these religious festivals, what you can eat, what you can drink, has now been fulfilled, has now been accomplished, has now been completed. So that is what Paul is starting to get at here. It's what he's unpacking for us, that we are free from the ceremonial laws. We don't have to worry about avoiding shellfish or multi-fabric clothing. And I want to actually return to the concept that this is a weird command to keep before I move on. You see, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that the authors of the New Testament were immensely precise in their rhetoric. I think what Paul is doing here is he knows if he tells us explicitly, you should not judge, we might bristle, we might get upset, we might push back a little bit. And so what Paul does is he finds a group of people who are feeling judged, and he speaks through them to us. And so in Paul saying, don't let anyone else cast judgment upon you, what he's really saying is, and you, in turn, ought not to cast judgment upon others. This is how you keep this command, is by keeping free the consciences of others, not burdening them down with what you and I might think of as necessary to prove authentic discipleship, true spirituality, faithful Christianity. It strikes me that this idea and the fact that this letter is written to a church means that the people he is talking about, the judgmental people, are in the Colossians' midst. And as we've studied the book of Colossians, it has struck me how similar Santa Cruz County is to the city of Colossae, which means I think it's fair to assume that such people would be in our midst. In fact, 
if we're honest, probably sitting in yours and when I'm sitting down instead of standing up, my chair. Wondering if other people are living up to our standards. We live in a day and age where everything is politicized and everything is judged and everything is put out in public to criticize, to tear down. It strikes me that one of the primary themes of Paul's letter as he ventures into the idea of not judging is to replace it with gratitude. What, rather than looking at each other and thinking, are each of us doing wrong? How can we look at each other and think, what am I thankful for in that member of our body? Why has God put them in our church? What gift do they bring? What is their role and job, and how can I bear with them, support them? see things through their eyes and their perspective. It's a common preacher's phrase to say, when you see a therefore in the text, you ought to ask, what is it therefore? And generally the answer is that it tracks us back to a previous point. You see, Paul begins this text with a pivot. If we had started reading further back in Colossians 2, we would have seen that all of a sudden he moves to application here. That he's turning from, in a sense, standard theology into practical theology. And if we tracked that, therefore, back into the passage preached last week, we would come across this. And this is important because you guys need to know that the medicine for legalism is the gospel. And here's where the therefore draws us back to in the previous paragraph. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. How we solve the problem of judgmentalism in our hearts is to remind ourselves frequently that we were dead. The message of the gospel is not something that gets applied to somebody in the hospital, they leave the hospital, and then it's done. The message of the gospel is a workout routine. It is a nutrition assignment. It is something we need regular infusions of. To remind ourselves, I was dead because I was a sinner, but I am made alive in Christ, not by works that are my own, but by the work that is Christ's. That reminder will keep us from judgmentalism. One commentator describing this passage said it this way, clearly what is envisaged here is a situation in which Colossian believers were being or might be criticized for their con conduct in respect to dietary rules and festival days. Equally clear is the line of reply, proper understanding of the significance of Christ's life, death, and resurrection would render all such criticism either unnecessary, irrelevant, or flatly wrong. By implication, those who cast this criticism 
are simply those who have not grasped the death and resurrection of Christ. Santa Cruz Baptist Church, let us be a church that never tires of hearing the gospel, of Christian first principles. Let that, therefore, we not fall into legalism, that we resist that error knowing that our salvation, that our spirituality comes to us not by some extra-biblical requirement imposed upon us, but rather our salvation and our spirituality comes to us only by the sinless life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul goes on in this passage, so should we. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions. This exhortation targets a slightly different error. If the previous error was that we would mistake the shadow of the Old Testament regulations for the substance of Christ, this error is that we mistake the substance of Christ as shadow. That seeing Christ, starting in Christ, believing in Christ is only the beginning point for which we move on to greater depth. Paul's concern throughout the letter of Colossians has been Gnosticism. This view that, among other things, believed that Jesus was just the starting point to true spirituality. And once having obtained faith in Jesus, you added all these extra things to Jesus in order to move into increasing depths of relationship with God, moving beyond Jesus into greater experience of the deity. And because of that, Paul's teaching here actually has a distinctly mystical flavor to it, warning us against that. And so he goes into asceticism, which just for those of you who might not know, it's a complex philosophical term. Fundamentally, asceticism is, a, is the philosophy that tells you in mortifying yourself, either physically your body or your spirit, in humiliating yourself, you can grow by disassociate, disassociating your soul from your body into greater areas of holiness. Because ultimately the body is wicked, sinful, gross, and evil. The teachings of the scriptures clearly run contrary to that. Even to the point of putting our Lord and Savior, God himself, incarnate, meaning in the flesh, in the body, in which he still lives embodied at the right hand of the Father. The body to God is not something gross and detestable that we're to move beyond. The body is his good creation and gift to us. A more basic translation of the word asceticism might be false humility. And as one commentator explains, the suggestion is that the, these people went through elaborate and self-denying processes, such as maybe extended periods of fasting or extra-long prayer times, perhaps, in order to get themselves in the right cognitive and spiritual place for worship. Somehow their idea was that if they gained access to the heavenly realms through hurting themselves physically, their worship would be more true. They would participate in some, something akin to the book of Revelation, where the angels around the throne of God praise him. And so the idea was to 
leave this earthly plane to enter into something supra-spiritual. This actually explains the phrase worship of angels. You see, it would be easy for us in English grammar to see that and think worshiping angels, which we might think is obviously wrong. We only worship God. But rather that phrase refers to the worship that angels give. The desire and the attraction and the temptation to remove ourselves from this plane and to enter into some sort of ethereal worship. Now, if you allow me to descend into sarcasm for a moment, which I would clearly never do without your permission, this might seem odd to us. We might think something along the lines of, so thankful that we've moved beyond the realm in which some sort of mystical experience or some sort of hilltop encounter or some sort of metaphysical, hyper-spiritual, tingly feeling engage our worship to make it feel true and right and good. That we need some sort of transcendence. I'm so glad that we have moved beyond that at this point historically. Sarcasm over. If you don't know what it was about, ask Ross. The Bible's description of worship is distinctly earthy. It makes me think of having the taste of kale. Paul goes on to say that we ought to avoid going people who go on in detail about visions. This, by the way, seems like an odd thing for Paul to exhort, considering he himself had a heavenly vision. It's actually laid out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or flesh, I do not know. Only God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in body or flesh, again, I do not know. Only God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In this passage, we see Paul is, feels a need to bring up this experience, but feels so hesitant as using it for authoritative leverage that he doesn't even tell him it's him. Twice he says, I know a guy. You know, just a, a friend, right? See, Paul's concern here was that people get away from the scriptures as the authoritative way to know and understand God. And that they venture into something subjective and personal, ethereal, and unprovable. That they step into some other realm and base their authority on something which other people could not encounter. Rather, Paul wants to ground us in the scriptures. So he says, what gives authority to someone? As Drew sang what should be our prayers, to hear the word of God and the voice of God from the scriptures which God has given. My authority, Drew's authority, Ross's authority, Dustin's authority, any elder at any church in any part of this county across any place in the globe, really, their authority is derived not from visions 
or mystical experiences, but from them clinging closely to this book, anchoring themselves, grounding themselves here. Anything else prepares us to be tossed to and fro, to be thrown about by all sorts of false teachings. And Paul says these things, this idea that some sort of mystical experience can give you authority, has a fundamental motivation and attitude behind it. And he says the person who Paul has in mind is described as puffed up without reason. It's like the guy who brags about his basketball skill, not realizing that standing near him is LeBron James, Steph Curry, just in the bath, in the going through the grocery store. He's puffed up and he has no reason to be given his present company. Given the existence of the scriptures, those who rely merely on visions have no reason for their authority. Paul tells us that the solution to this is the same reason, is the same thing they get wrong. They are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. They do not hold fast to the head. They do not cling to Christ. Any church they have is a decapitated body. No neck, no head. I'm not entirely sure this is a good idea right now. There we go. Thank you. And so Paul brings us to a bit of a close in the, proceed, in the next paragraph. Paul tries to wrap these two strains of what we might do together. If we might legalistically cling to Jewish rituals, or we might mystically impose Gnostic ideas and values, he's going to draw them together with an observation about our natural state as fallen humanity. He says, starting in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do, or do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Take careful note of three things in this paragraph. First, the ultimate goal Paul has in mind is stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's what Paul wants us to set our sights on. That's what our target is. Second, we have a tendency to make self-made religions that seem wise to us. And third, these things are the works of elemental spirits of the world. If you haven't spent much time in scripture, I can understand how the phrase indulgence of the flesh would be pretty odd. Here's what you need to know about it. Paul's most characteristic use of the term flesh does not describe 
the actual thing that sits on our muscles and bones, but rather it describes our natural state of rebellion against God. In other words, when you were born into the world, your default setting is opposition to God and the things of God. Earlier in the service, Romans chapter one or chapter eight was read from. This is what we read. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh or for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh fulfill, uh, in order that right, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is, to set on, that is set on flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice how Romans 8 pits flesh and spirit against each other. You can see that the law cannot save you by itself because the law was weakened by your flesh, by your sinful nature and tendencies, by your opposition and rebellion. However, Jesus was put in our likeness, in the likeness of flesh. Looking like a normal sinner like the rest of us, but instead of participating in sin, he condemned sin and fulfilled the law. And if we are in flesh, if we remain in arrogant rebellion, our minds and desires are directed and attracted to the rebellion, and that will lead us to death. It cannot and does not please God. But if the Spirit makes us alive and unites us to Christ, then we are empowered to set our minds and our desires on the things of God. That is, we find ourselves in a state of peace with God. And then we enter into the actual experience of eternal life prior to our death. In essence, then, the pursuit of holiness is an act of war on our own flesh. And our fleshly tendencies that dwell in us. The biblical theological word for this process is sanctification which Paul writes is God's will for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is God's will, your sanctification. So God's will is therefore the goal which we resist indulging the flesh. But we're prone to do this even in our religion because we establish false religions. One of my favorite commentators on this is an atheist by the name of David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was one of the most well-heralded, one of the most avant-garde, one of the most influential authors of his time. He would still be alive today, most likely, had he not taken his own life. Shortly before he did, he gave a speech 
at the Liberal Arts College, Kenyon College. It was the commencement speech. And he said this. There's something weird but true in our day-to-day -day trenches of adult life. There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And there's a pretty compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some invaluable set of ethical principles. And it's that this, pretty much anything you choose to worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in your life into, then you will never have enough. You will never feel enough. That's the truth. Worship your body, beauty, sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before anyone ever mourn you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid all the time. And you will need ever-increasing amounts of power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. And you will, in the end, always feel stupid, always feel a fraud, as if you're on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are humanity's default settings. Again, David Foster Wallace, atheist, postmodern, maybe the first post-truth author America ever saw. Yet in that moment of writing the speech, he saw through the fog of this world and saw clearly that we all worship. We all set up self-made religions. We all tend to reverse our roles in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, trying to, craft some, trying to craft some sort of God in our image. Or in Exodus 20, trying to lay out some sort of law that would please us. It is our constant temptation. But these will not save us, as the late Wallace said. They will eat us alive. I disagree with him, obviously, that Jesus and Allah, the God of Islam, are on the same level, let alone the other things that he mentioned. But he was dead on with the destructiveness of false religion. And this religious tendency comes to us through something Paul calls the elemental spirits of the world. According to scholars, this is a way for Paul to simultaneously talk about the philosophies and worldviews and the primary ways of thinking that are present in our culture, along with actual literal forces of darkness, which either lie behind or at least make use of those things. In other words, it is a way for Paul to talk about how people in our world might see things as wise and how spiritual forces might take advantage of the frameworks they lay out. I think we see an example of this in the book of Joshua, which we preached through almost a year ago. 
In Joshua chapter 9, as the people of God enter the promised land, conquering city after city, advancing as God directed them to, a very crafty group of people come to them. They plan to trick them, being neighbors, but wearing worn and, or worn and old clothes, carrying with them crumbly and stale food. And they try and make a deal with the Israelites, lying to them about who they were, but knowing that the Israelites and desiring faithfulness, if they make this deal before God, they will hold to it even when these tricksters are found out. And so you hit the devastation of verse 14 in Joshua chapter 9. So the men, speaking of Joshua and the leaders with him, took some of their provisions, speaking of the travelers who met them, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. How was Joshua to know? It was a trick. It was a trap. It was clever. It was well put together. This is where how the book of Joshua begins becomes immensely important. Joshua 1, starting in verse 7, says this. God speaking to, through his people to Joshua says, Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success where you go. This book of the law shall not depart your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. The implication is that the word of the Lord should have, as the Proverbist writes, directed Joshua's steps. But seeing a way that Joshua thought was wise... He made the decision without the counsel of the Lord. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough. We must be people who rely on God's word to direct our lives. It's important that we recognize the steadfastness to God's word was not something which Paul mentioned as a shadow, as if the Bible passed away when Jesus came but rather the scriptures are the enduring way in which we, unlike the false teachers, cling to our head, hold fast to him, and are bound not only as individuals, but corporately unity in the body of Christ, as each of us various members cling. In closing, I'd simply like to offer a prayer for us. So would you bow with me and pray?